0: As naval officers, we take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. What's all that mean? (music) And then there's the Uniform Code of Military Justice. What's that all about?
1: When we think of the United States being a global power and the necessity to have jurisdiction, again, all over the world, the Uniform Code of Military Justice allows us to bring our justice system wherever we may be. You know, if you look at the Uniform Code of Military Justice, it has application in space. It has application on the moon.
2: What's really interesting in looking at the drafting of the Constitution that the Articles of Confederation was not working. And so beginning in 1785, Washington convened a group, the early founders, to discuss what was wrong with the Articles. And they agreed to meet in Annapolis in 1786, the so-called Annapolis Convention. And at Annapolis, they decided to issue another call to meet the next year, 1787, in Philadelphia. And the purpose was to amend the Articles of Confederation. Now, here's where it gets really interesting.
0: I'm your narrator and your host, Michael Sears, from the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. With this series of classes, we're going to dive into the Bill of Rights and why it matters to you as a naval officer. We're going to look at the history of the Bill of Rights, its connection to the United States Constitution, and how it intersects with the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ. In 1785, Maryland and Virginia differed on the matter of rights of navigation on the Potomac River and Chesapeake Bay. A meeting on the question led to a general discussion of interstate commerce. As a result, the Virginia legislature called for a convention of all the states at Annapolis, on September eleventh, 1786. However, only five states participated, and the convention decided that such questions could not be effectively dealt with unless the inadequacies of the Articles of Confederation were addressed. It was proposed, and the recommendation was adopted by Congress that a convention be held eight months later in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In the summer of 1787, Representatives from the 13 new states of the United States got together in Philadelphia. The point was to review the Articles of Confederation, which had governed the 13 colonies since its inception in 1777 and its ratification in 1781. Under the Articles, the states remained independent and separate sovereignties. They were a notoriously weak set of ideas for central governance that established a government unable to manage interstate commerce, protect federal borders, levy taxes, and defend against insurrections like Shays' Rebellion. One seminal question arose from the inadequacies of the Articles of Confederation. Was the newly founded America merely a collection of states or one united union? The 55 delegates that convened in Philadelphia, later known as our Founding Fathers, did more than just review the Articles of Confederation. They completely ripped it apart. The Founding Fathers proposed a new constitution for the United States. They included a system of checks and balances between the executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judiciary. That document went much further than the Articles of Confederation ever had dared and answered that overarching question, we were to be the United States of America, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That said, the proposed Constitution left significant gaps and shortcomings in our ideals as a country, failing to ensure total equality for women, men without property, all people of color, and tragically ignoring the question of slavery. The document was not perfect, but significantly, The later introduction of the Bill of Rights and the amendment process allowed the Constitution to be a living, breathing document, capable of correcting its inherent wrongs as the country developed and grew. In many ways, that original sin, slavery, would not be addressed until four score years later with the American Civil War. One of the things it did not specifically address, however, was individual rights, While it said what the government could do, it didn't specifically say what the government could not. And of course, it appears that it only truly applied to male citizens who owned property. The silence on the individual rights became an obstacle to the ratification of the Constitution. It would take several years of significant debate within state houses before the final ratification of the Constitution. Two groups, Federalists, an anti federalist rose to the occasion to publish and discuss the Constitution in the public square. They debated its ratification in the absence of the Bill of Rights. In essence, the new citizens of the United States demanded strong guarantees that they had not just cast off the tyranny of a despot king for the tyranny of a strong central government. The Bill of Rights was written to mollify these fears. What started in Annapolis was written in Philadelphia and finally ratified by three-quarters of the states, the United States Constitution, the first national document of its kind, became the law of the land. And it is that Constitution, with its Bill of Rights, that we as naval officers pledge allegiance to.
2: Having been appointed a midshipman in the United States Navy, do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic? and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you are about to enter. So help you God.
0: But what is the relevance of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution for that matter to us as naval officers? Of course, we all take the oath of office on I-Day. But why does that matter? And what about the Uniform Code of Military Justice? Where does that fit in with me? Where does the UCMJ fit in with the Bill of Rights? I'm joined by a distinguished panel of experts, history professors, legal scholars, and Navy and Marine Corps officers, lawyers, serving as staff judge advocates. We're diving into the history of the document, the characters that shaped our country, and then we're getting into the details of the first 10 amendments of the United States Constitution and how our understanding of the Bill of Rights has evolved over time. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself, but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government— to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is, no doubt, the primary control on the government. But experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. James Madison, Federalist 51. The Articles of Confederation had their flaws and established a collection of states rather than one united union. Even in 1781, ratification faced opposition from states fearful of an overly powerful central government. What were the circumstances surrounding the 1787 Constitutional Convention? And what prompted the Founding Fathers to reconsider the Articles of Confederation?
2: This is Professor Mary DeCretico, Department of History at the U.S. Naval Academy. Shay's Rebellion took place in 1786. It was a a revolt of farmers in Western Massachusetts. They were Revolutionary War veterans who wanted pensions that were not given to them. And as a result of high taxes, their farms were being foreclosed. And so Daniel Shays led a group of farmers. They actually seized the armory in Springfield, Massachusetts. And this scared the founders because Shays and his men were using the revolutionary rhetoric. They were talking about liberty. It had tangible meaning to 18th and 19th century Americans. Liberty meant the absence of coercion. They viewed, these men, Shays men viewed taxes as coercion and taking away their liberty, taking away their fundamental rights. Because they're using the language of the revolution, this terrified the founders. Because this was the rabble. And as a Re- Shay's Rebellion really is going to add impetus to the focus on Philadelphia. We've already had the meeting in Annapolis in 1786. This proves that the Articles government is not working. We have a mob mentality, and so we must have some type of order. And Shay's Rebellion is going to underscore the weakness of the articles and add to the argument that we need a stronger document. And the articles is such a great example of how we don't want to be like England. You had to have unanimity uh, to change anything in the articles. Uh, one state, one vote. There's no central government. There's, there's no regular army. Thus, when Shays and the farmers rise up in revolt, it's going to be Massachusetts militia that puts them down. Which is going to add, you could almost argue that this is going to get to the Second Amendment. uh, States with a well-established militia and the right of individuals to bear arms.
0: If the articles were already being reconsidered, what were the specific circumstances leading up to Philadelphia?
2: What's really interesting in looking at the drafting of the Constitution is that there was a lot of unease uh, beginning in the 1780s um, because there was a sense among some of the prominent founders, particularly George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, that the Articles of Confederation was not working. Um, and The Articles was a direct reflection of what the 13 colonies did not want as a result of their experience with Britain. And so beginning in 1785, Washington convened a group of the early founders at Mount Vernon to discuss what was wrong with the articles. And they agreed to meet in Annapolis in 1786 and issued a call about five of the states came to Annapolis, the so-called Annapolis Convention. And at Annapolis, they decided to issue another call to meet the next year, 1787, in Philadelphia. And the purpose was to amend the Articles of Confederation. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Because when the men went to Philadelphia, there were 55 of them. uh, Interestingly enough, Patrick Henry refused to represent Virginia because he said he smelled a rat. But the men who met in Philadelphia, uh, they met in secret. We can never do that today. They actually nailed the windows shut. And the only way that we have any conception of what transpired was because Madison kept a diary. And I think they had to meet in secret because they were not amending the articles. They were scrapping them altogether. And this was pretty dangerous uh, because they had been selected to amend and now they're creating an entirely new document.
0: Dr. Jeffrey McCreese offers additional analysis on what preempted 1787 and the conditions the newly established United States faced during this period.
3: Dr. Jeff McCreese, the Deputy Director of the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy, and also taught for ten years in the history department at Navy, where I still teach today. But the victory of the colonies over Great Britain and its independence was clearly a, a watershed for people living in the uh, the nascent uh, United States. Um, but all was not uh, all was not well. In the first couple of years after the Treaty of Paris ended the American Revolution, uh, people enjoyed freedoms from Great Britain, but there were considerable troubles, both economically and politically. Uh, economically, uh, the colonists and now Americans were strapped with uh, with debts. Um, politically, Great Britain had been very slow to evacuate from some of the places that they had pledged to evacuate and leave in the West. And so, too, was Spain. Spain that was claiming territories in uh, the western part of some of the states. And, In the aftermath of the American Revolution, uh, there was no desire to keep a large and expensive standing army. And so uh, the United States now, the the new United States, had very little leverage uh, against uh, England and against uh, Spain. And so they found themselves uh, unable to influence international events, and economically, um, the Colonies or new states were bending over backwards and uh, putting each other at disadvantage. Uh, clamored to get uh, preferential trade treatment from some of the European countries. So there was a clear um, consensus among leaders of the new states that something was amiss. That uh, the government under the Articles of Confederation that had uh, held that all thirteen new states were independent and sovereign entities. That they needed to work better together. And there was a sense that a strong federal government might be part of that answer.
0: The conditions leading up to the Constitutional Convention appear clear. Shays' rebellion highlighted and exposed the fundamental flaws derived from the Articles of Confederation that plagued the nascent United States from its outset and subsequent victory in Yorktown. Simply, The Articles of Confederation left the United States weak centrally, unable to effectively govern itself, and vulnerable to foreign attacks. For the American experiment to prevail, change was absolutely necessary.
3: Uh, Delegates to the Constitutional Convention of 1787 uh, had put together what they believed was lessons learned from antiquity and from the relatively recent past, Uh, from antiquity in that uh, the founding fathers were great students of Aristotle, of uh, Polybius, of Cicero, and the others. And from the ancients, they took this belief that there ought to be in one government a mixture of three subsystems, if you will, uh, a monarchy uh, in the form of a chief executive, a, uh, an aristocracy in the form of a Senate um, uh, assemblies or a house of representatives, and as well an independent judiciary uh, to go along with it. So after a long hot summer in Philadelphia, there was a general consensus amongst the participants that they had a limited government. And despite the fact that there were some such as, uh, Virginia's George Mason, who demanded a bill of rights be included similar to the bill of rights of England. There was a belief amongst the majority, including James Madison, uh, that a bill of rights was not needed such a limited government that the, uh, that the members, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention of 1787 envisioned didn't require one. In the process though of the Constitution getting ratified uh, after the closure of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, there was a a growing uh, belief amongst the states that uh, such protections for individuals uh, needed to be put in place. And prior to Massachusetts, uh, Ascent, uh, seating, and voting for the Constitutional Convention in 1787, there was a promise put in place by a number of prominent supporters of the Federalist cause to include such a uh, Bill of Rights after ratification of the constitutions that the states had in front of them. Was there a political purpose for the Bill of Rights? Uh, of course, there was a political purpose. The immediate purpose was to gain acceptance on the part of the states of the U.S. Constitution uh, draft as drafted in the Convention of 1787. Over the longer term, uh, there was a belief that just as the English had found in the preceding century, when in 1689 they adopted their own uh, Bill of Rights prior to uh, granting the throne to uh, William, uh, William of Orange, that there ought to be checks against a government that becomes too powerful and there need to be protections enshrined uh, to the people through, uh, through the parliament and then ultimately the people themselves.
0: On September 17th, 1787, after 126 days of deliberation, the Constitution was signed. September 17th, celebrated today as Constitution Day, marks one of the country's most iconic days. It established a system of checks and balances between the executive, legislative, and judicial branch that persists and shapes our government today. The Constitution and its principles of limited and representative government was the first of its kind, directly influencing revolutions in France, Haiti, South America, and countries throughout the world for centuries to come. The Constitution notably set up the Electoral College, though only in its infancy and with much development to come, the Constitution remains one of the country's and the world's most influential documents.
2: The Electoral College is indicative of the founders believing that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. They wanted to believe that man was inherently good, like John Locke. But deep down, they thought man was inherently evil, like Thomas Hobbes. So how do we protect the electoral process? Well, when you cast a vote, you don't cast it for your candidate. You cast it for a person who will vote for that particular candidate. It's an effort to preserve, basically, rule by those best suited to rule this anomaly you see this wonderful document the constitution but the founders are very deliberate in putting in safeguards to keep the united states from being a full-blown direct democracy
0: but the constitution faced a long uphill battle to its ratification in 1791 and noticeably lacked a bill of rights at the time of its signing in fact Only 39 of the 55 delegates present in Philadelphia signed that September day. States and citizens remained fearful of an overly strong central government. A Bill of Rights was necessary to convince states the newly proposed government would guarantee individual liberties, protect the authority of states, and safeguard against tyranny. Let's go back and reflect Why were these demands so important to states unsure of the newly signed constitution? What were the main historical grievances by the King of England that the framers intended to correct with the Bill of Rights?
4: I'm Dr. Brielle Harbin. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the United States Naval Academy. So when thinking about the role of the influence of being under British rule on how the framers were thinking about the government going forward. One of the main things that was on the top of the brain um, was the encroachment on liberty and the overexertion of the state (laughs) on individuals' lives um, and thinking about how, um, so this kind of traces back to thinking about uh, human nature and. You know, Madison talks about this a lot in the different federalist papers. Like, what do we think the tendency of men in this context is? Um, And so the lessons that were learned from British um, rule was that, one, you needed to be wary of, you know, People overstepping um, the the powers that could be that were given to them in their in their capacity as leaderships, and also just needing to be very wary of you know what you say at time one and what you agree to at time one. The consequences that that has over time, um, because as dynamics change, as people accrue power and they become become comfortable. Are they going to ask for more? If you give them power, will they give it back? Um, And so these are all a legacy of going through the revolution and and thinking about all the different issues that came up that they witnessed um, and saw and the tendencies that they saw of leaders and considering those in the context of the new government that would be formed and whoever, if if you just fundamentally believe that men are not angels, then you need to create a government that accounts for that so when I think about the framers and where they're getting their ideas from I always start with Hobbes and Locke um, and the ways that they are fundamentally thinking about the idea of social contracts and how like one what is the ne- why is it necessary to have government in the first place what are the fundamental dispositions of uh, human beings so are they you know warlike, creatures who will just be disposed to pursuing their own self-interest? Are, are they generally good people who can live together? Um, and we need to just think about the people who are the outliers. So I always go back to the Enlightenment thinkers, and I start there just to provide an orientation toward the question of what is human nature. And I think that there were disagreements about that um, during the period of the Enlightenment. And then I move into thinking about Montesquieu and thinking about the idea of separations of power. And if we, I think the framers pretty much agreed that humans tend to be uh, uh, predisposed to uh, corruption and self-interest. And so once we get into that world, the question now becomes, how do we create a government that takes into account, you know, the worst that the worst of people and thinks about how we can use different constitutional devices to try and protect against what we understand to be the fundamental tendencies of, uh, of men. And I, am using men here's, you know, to mean general, people more generally, but at this time we were just talking about men. Um, but how do we create a government that can, anticipate all of those things. And so when I think about the main difference between federalists and anti-federalists, they have a disagreement about how, about the distribution of power, but they do agree that we need to be wary of men and giving them too much power just because they have all these lessons that they've learned from being under British uh, British rule and thinking about you know the English Civil War and all those different things. That's information that is operating in the world. That they are living in and they are knowledgeable about that because they are so highly educated.
0: We turn to Dr. McCreese to offer more historical background.
3: Yeah, the English Bill of Rights of 1688-1689 uh, covered a, a number of different grievances against the English king. Um, they lamented the suspension of laws by regal authority. Uh, they proclaimed that the king can't levy taxes without Parliament's assent. Uh, they said that anyone may petition the king Right, an early form, I guess, of freedom of, of speech. Uh, any of the speeches that are given in Parliament should be free from any type of recrimination or, or penalty. Um, the king can't keep a standing army in peacetime without uh, Parliament's approval. There shall be no excessive bail nor any cruel and unusual punishment. And the, the Bill of Rights also um, suggested that everyone should have the right to uh, bear an arm, uh, bear arms, and that um, the Crown can't prevent Protestants from, uh, from arming themselves. So there are a number of things within the English Bill of Rights that, uh, that resonate with the colonists a century later.
0: If the framers were united in their desire to avoid the same grievances, why were these not articulated in the Constitution itself? Why was the Bill of Rights even created? Why was it written after the Constitution? What made the creation of the Bill of Rights indispensable to the Constitution's ratification? Lastly, what philosophies guided the founders in creating the system of checks and balances we know today?
4: the bill of rights was written as a political compromise in what was a long uh process of trying to ratify the Constitution. So um, when I think about it, and when I typically talk about the Bill of Rights, I use the language of political compromise, and in particular, thinking about two really powerful factions that were uh, present during the time of ratification who were on opposing sides when thinking about the Constitution that was being proposed. Um, So the Bill of Rights, the function that it served at that time, um, was it helped to create a bridge between these opposing sides uh, who had d- very different views on whether or not the Constitution was the way forward after the Articles of Confederation. The very short answer to that question is that it was the Bill of Rights were drafted in order to get the Constitution passed. It was a concession on the part of the Federalists to try and bring the Anti-Federalist on board with um, the new proposed government or when you think about defining the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, the Federalist, the main difference between these two groups was how they uh, viewed how power should be distributed um, between states and the central government. So under the Articles of Confederation, you had um, a form of government where the locus of power was really uh, at the state level. Um, and so when you think about the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, the fundamental d- disagreement that they're having, particularly in the context of the Constitution, is about the amount of power that should be given to the central government versus the state government. The Federalists believed that we needed, especially after seeing the Articles Confederation uh, not work, (laughs) not be very efficient uh, for uh, for solving governance issues, we needed to have a stronger uh, centralized government. And the Anti-Federalists believed oh, well, hold on a second. We have this whole history of thinking about abuse of power. um, And they were really, really wary of having too strong of a centralized authority um, uh, because they believed it would come at the expense of interest at the state level.
0: Professor Harbin helps us understand that the Bill of Rights functionally served as a political compromise between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. Now the question begs, How did the difference between these two factions play out and develop?
2: The Bill of Rights is is a fascinating document in and of itself. And it had to be crafted because of the delegates, many of them would not sign the Constitution without a Bill of Rights. Um, George Mason of Virginia argued that the state's had constitutions that enumerated basic rights, but uh, others, and Randolph, uh, Elbridge Gerry said, no, we must have them spelled out. And here's where you get the divide between pro-constitution, the Federalists, and no constitution without a basic enumeration of rights, the Anti-Federalists. And basically, several key states, Virginia, and New York, uh, the two biggest and most prominent, basically said, we will not sign this document unless we have an enumeration of basic civil liberties. And the debate was, well, how can we possibly be so specific? And in order to avoid this impasse, George Mason and James Madison basically sat down and wrote, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And that enabled the Constitution to be ratified December 15th, 1791. But you can see it took four years between the convening of the Constitutional Convention and the writing of the Bill of Rights to get this document approved by three-quarters of the states.
0: After the decision to add the Bill of Rights to the Constitution, What were the largest barriers to the 1791 ratification? What steps were taken to achieve the three quarters approval for ratification? And how did
3: the Bill of Rights help? Toward the end of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, there was a a group of people who believed that there needed to be a Bill of Rights within the Constitution. The majority, including James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, believed that the design of The government that they had put together in Philadelphia constrained the central government enough that a Bill of Rights wasn't needed. However, uh, quickly in the process of getting the states to ratify the U.S. Constitution, it became apparent that to get the required number of states to approve it, that they were going to need to provide protections uh, in a Bill of Rights. So that really was the proximate cause for why the Bill of Rights came up. And those Bill of Rights would be voted on and adopted shortly after uh, the requisite number of states approved the U.S. Constitution.
0: Dr. McCreese establishes the Bill of Rights as the proximate cause to achieve ratification, but barriers continued to persist.
4: So I think that there are two barriers that are really important to think about when thinking about the, the constitution and getting it ratified. So the first is just that there are people who are coming with very different experiences at the state level that are influencing how they are thinking about the appropriate level of power that should be given to the central government. And, you know, as people who were highly educated and had all these experiences and think that they are well versed there's kind of I laugh and say sometimes you can have two highly educated people with PhDs who just disagree about things and see the world differently and so one of the largest barriers that I think is just that you had really smart people who just fundamentally saw the ideal way forward in different ways and I think the federalists and the anti-federalists they had Good points Um, when thinking about issues of representation, when they think about issues of the role that states should play vis a vis the central government. And so I think because both the Federalists and Anti Federalists had good points that they were raising at the time, we never really see a resolution of the question of how power should be distributed when we're thinking about states versus the central government. This is still something that we hear echoed in political debates today when you hear people talking about um, federalism, when you have people talking about, uh, in the context of the pandemic, uh, whether or not the federal government should be able to create a policy that says everybody should have to wear a mask, or if that should be something that's left to the states. That's essentially a question that echoes the concerns of the thoughts or the ideas of federalists and anti-federalists. And then also the question of whether or not there should be a small government or bigger government. That maps on to thinking about Republicans and Democrats and how they just have very fundamentally different visions on governance. You know, there are arguments that can be made, smart arguments on both sides. But at the end of the day, they're just at their core disagreements about the role of government, the vision of government, the implementation of government. And those can be traced back to these initial conversations that we see at the Constitutional Convention. Now, the other thing, the second barrier that I think is really something that's operating at the background, is just that we know that we, the country, is considering these issues of representation, of liberty. But in the background, we have slavery. In the background, we have indigenous people whose you know, land has been taken. And so it's a fundamental contradiction in American political development that people who are so afraid of you know, the rule, you know, King George and having their freedoms encroached on, were making all these decisions and having these conversations about the way forward while Really kicking the can down the road on this question of slavery. And so, you know, we see the compromise made with the, you know, in the revolutionary moment that we don't include the passage on slavery that Jefferson crafted so we're kicking it down the, uh, kicking the can down the road again. So now we're coming back to the question in the context of the uh, of the Constitution, and we see that slavery doesn't actually appear in the Constitution. We see slaves being described as other. I think it's other persons, and we're seeing that you know slavery can't be outlawed by Congress until 1808. We're seeing that. Slaves have to be returned, even though there's this contradiction of we want to have state-centered power and states to have autonomy. We're saying that, well, even if a a slave gets to a free state by the conversations and uh, decisions that we're making at the Constitution, that slave has to be returned no matter where they are. So in complete ways, there was this sidestepping of this question that has to be resolved if you are really going to be true to the definition of liberty, of freedom. And that's why we, you know, fast forward 80 80 years, get to the Civil War, which becomes, you know, a fundamental divide, you know, literally the union breaking apart and get to having to return to the question because there were these compromises that were made, but they were incomplete, getting to the civil rights movement and thinking about giving... African-Americans and women and giving them additional rights, it's still work that's incomplete. And so the same barriers or the same challenges that the people at the Constitution or Constitutional Convention were facing are ones that we're still grappling with today. And the work is still incomplete. The question
0: of slavery, the United States' original sin, could not forever be ignored. And the Civil War stands testament to. But in the critical years between 1787 and 1791, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists agreed to address the question later down the road. The Bill of Rights did not offer the protections it guaranteed to every citizen, but it still functioned as a necessary political tool to eventually achieve ratification. Without it, ratification would never have happened. The history of the Bill of Rights is long and varied. Many voices from many different places, targeting many different outcomes. The history of naval and military discipline is just as ancient, stretching back millennia. Good order and discipline has been essential for the proper functioning of sailors, Marines, soldiers, and more recently, airmen.
1: My name is Colonel Christopher B. Shaw, United States Marine Corps, graduated from the Naval Academy in 1994 and became an infantry officer. After that, I went to law school and became a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. Currently, I'm serving as the staff judge advocate for Marine Corps Combat Development Command. The history of the Uniform Code of Military Justice uh, goes, starts with the history of the United States. Uh, back in 1775, the Second Continental Congress established 69 Articles of War to govern conduct of the Continental Army. Once the Revolution was over and the Constitution was ratified, the United States Congress created in Article One, Section 8, the power of the Congress to regulate land and naval forces. And then a couple years later in 1806, the United States Congress enacted 101 Articles of War. And they also created the Articles for the Government of the United States Navy. These uh, two uh, Articles of War and the, the Governments of the United States Navy really were in place up until 1950. And actually, World War II was, was governed under the Articles of War And the articles of the government of the United States Navy commonly referred to rocks and shoals. After World War II, the Uniform Code of Military Justice comes into its own. Some of the features of the Uniform Code of Military Justice are you get defense counsel, you get military judges, you get appellate rights. And really from the 1950s until now, You have almost like pendulum shifts in the Uniform Code of Military Justice with powers going to commanders and powers going to accused up until now, and you have a Uniform Code of Military Justice, which slightly has more powers uh, towards the commander.
5: I'm Lieutenant Commander Liz Jarzik, JAG Corps, United States Navy. I'm an Assistant Professor of Military Law in the Leadership Education and Development Division. I'm also the Law Section Head here at the United States Naval Academy. So the history of the UCMJ is that it was enacted by Congress in May of 1950 and went into effect about a year later. And it's called Uniform because for the first time in American history, all of the service branches were going to be bound by the same rules and procedure. Prior to that, uh, the Army had its own code of regulations. They fell under what was called the Articles of War, and the Navy used what was informally called rocks and shoals, uh, a fleet term that was used to describe the Articles for the Government of the Navy, which governed us for most of our early history and was relatively unchanged for a very long period of time.
0: So, if there is a different code for military jurisprudence and discipline, and if it is even more ancient than the U.S. Constitution, why do we keep it? We have the Constitution now. Why not let the civilian system rule the naval service? We're joined by Commander Mark Nevitt, United States Navy Judge Advocate General Corps, retired, the Distinguished Military Professor of
6: Leadership and Law at the United States Naval Academy. So why, why do we have it? I think that the military is, is sort of different from society, has a different mission, national security mission, maintain good order and discipline, and to pr- promote the efficiency and effectiveness in the military establishment. So it's different from the civilian system's goals, especially this focus in the military justice on good order and discipline. There, there's crimes in the military that just don't apply if you are at the Anne Arundel District Attorney's Office, absent without leave, desertion, failure to obey an order, you need to have some accountability or mechanism to ensure good order and discipline. And and the second thing that's really key to the U.S. military justice system is this notion of the convening authority. The convening authority is a commander, a line officer, a non-lawyer who really is invested with the adjudicatory power, the power to send cases to courts martial and oversee the system of justice. The convening authority is advised by a JAG or staff judge advocate, a lawyer, but it's not the local district attorney or U.S. attorney that's making the decisions. Um, It's the convening authority, which centralizes the role of military justice related to the broader mission that a commanding officer or convening authority has over any kind of military operation.
1: Really, it it goes to the fact that the military is a society that's separate and apart, uh, from United States society. And the theory, because it is a theory, because you could do it another way, and there's other countries that do it other ways, but in the United States, the theory is that because the goal is to protect the nation, and we are protecting the nation all over the world so we have to bring our jurisdiction all over the world and that the martial life is different than civilian life that you need a system that's separate and apart despite the fact that the system is separate and apart there are are many similarities in those systems so if we look at the military rules of evidence they are very similar to the federal rules of evidence. When we look at uh, civil procedure, you know, there are some similarities to uh, the military system. And if, you, and actually, if you went into a military courtroom, despite folks being in uniform, the courtroom is very similar to civilian courtrooms. Another piece of this, though, is that this doesn't have to be this way. So there are some countries where there isn't a separate military system, where their soldiers and sailors and marines and airmen are actually subject to the same civilian law and the same civilian penalties as civilians. But when we think of the United States being a global power and the necessity to have jurisdiction, again, all over the world, the Uniform Code of Military Justice allows us to bring our justice system wherever we may be. You know, if you look at the Uniform Code of Military Justice, it has application in space. It has application on the moon.
0: As a sailor or marine, then, we know that it applies in the air, on land and sea, and even on the moon.
6: But what about when we're off-duty? So at all times, um, 24-7, 365, <laughs> if you are a military active duty officer, and the reserve rules are quite complicated, so we'll just keep it simple with uh, midshipmen at the Naval Academy, the UCMJ does apply to him or her, um, you are seen as representing the military at all times. You never, you may take the uniform off physically, but Symbolically, you never really take it off as, as a representative of the U.S. Armed Forces. And so I think that the UCMJ is unique in criminal law and that it applies, again, 24-7 and it applies worldwide. So if you stop at the 12 nautical miles territorial sea of the United States and go to Europe, the UCMJ still applies. If you take a cruise to Antarctica, the UCMJ still applies. It sort of reinforces this notion that the military and the military member is sort of always on duty, ready to be called to do whatever the nation's bidding is.
0: So we have two systems. Where is the connection? Is there a connection between the UCMJ and the U.S. Constitution of the Bill of Rights? And if so, how does the UCMJ play with the Bill of Rights vis-a-vis all citizens, in uniform or not?
5: The Bill of Rights being constitutional law, right, is part of the supreme law of the land. The UCMJ is a federal statute. So it's federal law, but it is bound by the left and right limits of the Constitution and therefore the Bill of Rights. So the interaction really is that nothing that the UCMJ sets out to do can run afoul of those left and right limits that are in the Bill of Rights. Driving is a privilege, actually, not necessarily a right. So my ability as the government to limit your privilege is going to be a little bit broader than my ability to limit your no kidding constitutional right. And the word I would use to describe how the Bill of Rights and the UCMJ interact is that it's not so much about what the UCMJ does to the Bill of Rights, but it's about how courts interpret The Bill of Rights, when the government entity that's trying to do something, is the United States military. So the Supreme Court and lower federal courts, when they are looking at constitutional challenges to some military policy or some aspect of the UCMJ, are going to be more persuaded by the government's arguments that, hey, this is really no kidding necessary to limit this person's right in the interest of good order and discipline. By virtue of the fact that we are this specialized society, the government is going to be accorded more deference in trying to, to an extent, limit your exercise of your rights under the the Bill of Rights. Now, it's not carte blanche. They don't have a blank check to do anything that they want to us as service members, but they are going to have a little bit more ability to control what we do because of that very high deference that the courts give the military.
6: So the Constitution and its applicability to military members, there is no explicit carve-out exception for the military in the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says, Bill of Rights does not apply to military members, right? Um, So the Constitution does apply, the Bill of Rights, all seven articles, all 27 amendments, does apply to military members, um but there's certain exceptions and limitations and restraints on that um the bill of rights first amendment due process protections against unreasonable search and seizures are again all applied to military members but the military is still given great deference and uh, how it is implemented particularly if Uh, a law, a regulation that the military has relates to a military purpose, that notion of good order and discipline, the military mission. So the courts, when looking at uh, how the military uh, is implementing the constitutional rights, will look at, well, is there a relation on how you restrain those rights to a military purpose? Does it relate to uh, a broader military mission? Does it recognize that the military is a specialized society?
0: Thanks for listening to the Bill of Rights podcast from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. This is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and how the Uniform Code of Military Justice relates to each other. Tune in for the rest of the series covering freedoms, criminal procedure, courts, trials, and enumerated rights, among other things. You raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Sockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aiden Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. We'd also like to thank our guests, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCreese, Professor Mary DeCritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by shot. Lynn Morrell Miranda, music from Hamilton. Luigi Baccarini, night music of the streets of Madrid, Pase Cale. Music from Master and Commander, the far side of the world. The U.S. Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. And Top Gun's theme, written and arranged by Harold Faltmeyer. Words by James Madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation. And we are happy they did.